when you have a leaky gut and it affects the immune system and it affects the mouth, it may cause inflammation in the mouth in its early stages, which would be seen as bleeding in the gum tissue. And it doesn't have to be bleeding on every gum surface all the time. If you use a little cleaner called a Tepe um, Easy Pick, T-E-P-E Easy Pick, it's a little silicone cleaning device. It's fantastic to clean between the teeth. But if you use that anywhere in the mouth between the teeth and you notice a little bit of bleeding anywhere, it's a sign of chronic systemic inflammation. And it most likely is an indicator of a leaky gut. I am excited to bring you a conversation with periodontist and cancer survivor, Dr. Al Dannenberg. Dr. Al shares his story of being diagnosed with incurable multiple myeloma and how he used his integrative and functional approach for his own health to fight this disease. We talk on this podcast episode today about how our oral health is affected by our microbiome, the most important steps to keep our teeth and gums healthy, and the key changes Dr. Al made in his diet and lifestyle to improve his health. What I found most interesting about this podcast, among other things, were the difference between the gut and the oral microbiome and how they're interlinked, as well as the key mindset shifts that Dr. Al needed to really survive and thrive. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health, a clinic, community, and movement focused on root cause healthcare transformation. This is a podcast dedicated to transforming this consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. Please join us to hear Dr. Al's inspiring story and to hear what he has learned as a periodontist about how our oral health and gut health can impact our whole body. Dr. Al, thank you so much again for coming on today, and we're so honored to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. So you are a periodontist, and um, just for the listeners, if you could just kind of go into the basics, what do you help your patients with? What is a periodontist? So a periodontist is a dentist who's gone through all the years of dental school training and then has decided to specialize in periodontics, which is the treatment of the gum tissue, the bone structure supporting the teeth, and other elements that are involved there. And how is gum health related to to overall health? Another kind of general question here. Well, this is actually a huge question. Most dentists will think, and most medical professionals will think that infection starts in the mouth and then spreads to the rest of the body. And I would say that's 50% correct. The only correction is it doesn't start in the mouth for the, for the most part. Most problems in the mouth start in the gut. And when there is gut dysbiosis, meaning that the garden of bacteria in the gut are not in healthy proportions. For example, our, our, our body is made up of 38 trillion microbes and just 30 trillion human cells. So we're mainly microbial and most of that is in the gut. And those, those microbes do tremendous things to keep us alive. If we killed off our gut bacteria, we would die. Absolutely, we would die. But when the gut microbiome is not functioning well for a 
host of reasons. And we can go into the reasons why. And different potentially pathogenic bacteria, meaning very harmful bacteria, overgrow and start affecting the immune system. And the one cell layer thick lining of the gut, then toxic elements can put pour into the bloodstream. The immune system tries to fight it, but it's not successful. And chronic systemic inflammation becomes a real problem. And that chronic systemic inflammation travels to every cell and every organ system in the body, including the mouth. And when that starts to happen, the gut, the microbiome in the mouth, which is a unique garden of bacteria unto itself, starts to destabilize. And potentially pathogenic bacteria may become overactive and create tooth decay and gum disease, all added, uh, all being um, fed by poor diet choices, certain foods, a variety of things. So once the infection starts and becomes a problem in the mouth, that infection can spread through the circulatory system, through the lymph tissue, through nerve fibers, a variety of ways to get into other structures in the body, creating all the chronic diseases that we attribute to the mouth, but it starts in the gut. So the gut is affecting all organ systems and infection in the mouth because of the gut affects all organ systems. So if anyone were to treat the mouth alone, they would not be able to treat this disease completely. The gut must be treated and the mouth has to be treated concurrently. And most people don't understand the linkage and most people don't understand exactly how to treat the gut. That's a complicated answer to a simple question. <laughs> I would say most healthcare most healthcare practitioners also don't really know they don't. that that um, cycle. And, and I have a question for you about the gut mouth connection. So, when the gut bacteria escape from that single cell gut lining to the bloodstream and causes systemic inflammation, that causes eventually mouth or oral dysbiosis are the same bacteria that are in the gut actually seeding the mouth or is it just, is it more that the inflammation is just sort of disturbing the, the oral um, microbiome and then those kind of bad actors in the oral microbiome are getting getting so it's active. not the bad bacteria that leak into the circulatory system it's their byproducts for example the most important would be lipopolysaccharides or lps um, are the the gram-negative bacteria. And those gram-negative bacteria, many of which may be pathogenic, can, when they die, they can leak into the bloodstream. Normally, lipopolysaccharides are in the gut and we excrete them. But if there is damage to the gut microbiome and damage to the epithelial barrier, creating holes, which would be known as a leaky gut, those molecules of lipopolysaccharides get into the circulatory, circulatory system. That is what's affecting the immune system. And that is what gets into other organ systems, including the mouth. And because of a dysfunctional immune system and lipopolysaccharides being so highly in the mouth, and then the, there's this unique bacterial garden in the mouth that is similar, but but different than the gut. 
So really gut, gut dysbiosis, leaky gut, then leads to eventually systemic inflammation by way of lipopolysaccharide. Yes. And then that will ultimately affect the oral microbiome. So we can talk about, let's talk about that. You had mentioned, uh, what are your factors for what leads to the breakdown of the gut lining? There are many things. First of all, certain foods, foods that are um, like sugar, like alcohol, like anti-nutrients, like lectins and oxalates, all of these types of nutrients or bad nutrients or bad foods can damage the, the um, gut microbiome. In turn, the gut microbiome directly can affect the gut epithelial barrier. But then there are other things like emotional stress. If you are the healthiest person in the world, but you're dealing with emotional stress, which is constant, then that emotional stress, because of the chemicals that are produced, cortisol creating other uh, issues, will damage the epithelial bar barrier by itself. Chemicals in food like glyphosate, which is an herbicide that is used in conventional farming, the residues of glyphosate getting into your gut damage the microbiome and definitely damage the epithelial barrier. Stre um, uh, over exercise, under exercise, um, poor sleep habits, all of these elements can damage the, not only the, the garden of bacteria, but the epithelial barrier. So, and, and medications, we take so many medications, over-the-counter drugs, we take prescription drugs, many of which can be very damaging to the gut microbiome. Supplements, supplements can damage the gut microbiome. Most supplements, first of all, they're synthetic, because of that, that can damage the gut. But most supplements contain chemicals called either inert ingredients or other ingredients on the label. These chemicals can be preservatives and a variety of additives to uh, make the, the pill solid or um, preserve or uh, emulsify the, the medicine into the, into the uh, gut. But these chemicals actually have been shown to damage the, the um, uh, uh, garden of bacteria in the gut. So all of these things in and of themselves, but even more importantly, on a, on a cumulative basis, will slowly damage the gut microbiome. And then antibiotics. Antibiotics, many people use antibiotics on a regular basis. Certainly the medical profession has used antibiotics indiscriminately. And the antibiotic regimen not only kills some bad guys, but it kills a host of good guys and it will allow potentially pathogenic bacteria to overgrow. So there's a host of other things that can affect the gut and its membrane. And, and in terms of the interface between dentistry and medicine, which we know is really a false separation, right? It's really all linked together. Um, there used to be a lot more usage of antibiotics for even routine dental cleanings. I believe this is starting to change. Yes, yes that's true. Yes, that's true. Prophylactically, um, antibiotics were used a, a lot, and dentists would write prescriptions for antibiotics, even though they saw infection in the mouth, even if it wasn't systemic, they were using systemic antibiotics. Um, physicians also would be writing for um, 
antibiotics on a regular basis, even when it's a viral infection. Antibiotics don't treat viruses, but um, it was being, being written. So that's a problem. Now, if you have dentistry in the mouth, you know, fillings and um, a variety of dental appliances, and they're not fitting well, or they're cutting the gum tissue, or they're irritating, that can initiate infection in the mouth, even though there's not infection in the gut at that point. So there are some indications where the infection actually starts in the mouth. But for the most part, when it's a bacterial inflammation, it is definitely an individual needs to look at the gut and identify if there is gut dysbiosis, um, which is not easy to do. But if there is gut dysbiosis, certainly the mouth can be treated, but the, mouth, the gut has to be treated. We use a lot of functional stool testing in our practice. What do you think about diagnosing this without testing? Or do you feel like everyone needs a test? Or do you just assume that everyone has leaky gut and well, gut dysbiosis? That's a great question because there was a published study, I think in 2000, something like 2019, that showed that the U.S. adult population, of the U.S. adult population, 88% are metabolically unhealthy. So to be metabolically unhealthy, you must have a leaky gut. To have autoimmune disease, you must have a leaky gut. Many of the diseases we treat are autoimmune diseases. So definitely there's a leaky gut component. There are some tests, there are some stool tests. M most of them are not very valuable. One of the stool tests that can determine alpha diversity is quite unique. Alpha diversity is a term that means that you have a many, many, many different species of bacteria in your gut and many numbers of these different species. And when you have a high alpha diversity relative to a, a literally a quote, healthy population, if you have a very high alpha diversity, you have so many different species of bacteria that they crowd out potentially pathogenic bacteria. And when you have a moderate or a low alpha diversity, you are prone to overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria. That's a great test. Another test is, um, I think Cirex makes a test called Cirex or A2, which identifies and, and looks at certain um, chemicals in the epithelial barrier that indicate that there may be perforations or a leaky gut. Um, there are other tests that you can do that are only questionable. I will tell you this, which is interesting. When you have a leaky gut and it affects the immune system and it affects the mouth, it may cause inflammation in the mouth in its early stages, which would be seen as bleeding in the gum tissue. And it doesn't have to be bleeding on every gum surface all the time. If you use a little cleaner called a Tepe um, Easy Pick, T-E-P-E -E, Easy Pick, it's a little silicone cleaning device. It's fantastic to clean between the teeth. But if you use that anywhere in the mouth between the teeth and you notice a little bit of bleeding anywhere, it's a sign of chronic systemic inflammation. And it most likely is an indicator of a leaky gut treat the leaky gut and then that early gingival or gum inflammation and bleeding, which is called gingivitis can reverse all by itself. That's as incredible. Long as, they're not a, 
as long as there is not an underlying dental problem, like a filling that's irritating or uh, decay that's under a filling or something like that. Mm -hmm. Great advice, especially if someone listening out there doesn't have access to a stool test or, you know, wondering if they have leaky gut. Like you said, chances are probably they do if 88% of the U.S. is metabolically unhealthy per the study from, I think, North Carolina. There is this idea of sometimes we have to test in order to find out, but actually our bodies are the best test. Absolutely. The clinical manifestations, of course, unfortunately, come way after the fact of um, problems with the leaky gut. So it's not like you have a leaky gut and all of a sudden you manifest disease. It takes a while. And my own personal journey, I can explain to you, it took, I would say, decades before I manifested what, what actually has occurred to me. Let's get into that. Uh, for one second, I just want to talk about the key steps that you recommend for maintaining an, a healthy oral microbiome sure. or a healthy mouth. Sure. sure. So personal oral hygiene is critical. Now, certainly a diet is critical. Certainly to take care of your gut is cr critical and all the other factors I mentioned. But one of those elements of taking care of your mouth would be basic personal oral hygiene. So here's what I recommend. You need to clean, first, let, let, let me put, put this first and foremost. Dental plaque is healthy until it's not. You do not want to remove dental plaque completely from your mouth. And most dentists, most hygienists, and most people that talk about the oral health show you and tell you and recommend to you products that literally destroy the dental plaque. There is no place in the body that I know of where a structure pierces the skin and embeds itself into sterile tissue and is healthy except the tooth. So look at the tooth. It's a hard structure piercing the gum tissue, the skin in the mouth, embedding itself into the sterile jawbone. If that were the case, which it is, and nothing else were going on, bacteria in your mouth could literally slide down this wet surface, hot, moist, wet surface, uh, or, or enclosed surface, slide into the jawbone, necrose or kill or eat up the jawbone, and we would die. Our species never would have survived. Well, obviously, it doesn't, doesn't happen. Why doesn't it? Well, the tooth structure into, under the gum and into the bone have numerous immune cells to take care of any bacterial or viral or other microbe invasion. That's true. But there is a superficial bat, um, a preventative biofilm that protects where the tooth enters the gum, where the tooth and gum meet. And that biofilm is called dental plaque. And in dental plaque, there are about two or 300 different species of microbes in that dental plaque. And those species of microbes do three major things. One of which is they produce hydrogen peroxide by themselves that kills off any potentially pathogenic bacteria in the mouth that want to get into that crevice, that space. They also have chemical buffers within them themselves that maintain the acid level to a pH of 5.5. 5. 
that pH of 5.5 is just moderate acidity. And it does, and it prevents any more acid to be produced because that would cause tooth decay. So actually dental plaque, when it's healthy, prevents tooth decay. And third thing is that this dental plaque acts as a gatekeeper so that it allows minerals from the saliva to enter into the root surface to remineralize the root surface as necessary 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you don't wanna strip off this dental plaque. It's hard to strip off the dental plaque because it reforms very quickly. But people that use antimicrobial toothpaste, antimicrobial mouthwashes, they suck on gum that have chemicals, uh, in, in, including xylitol that destroys the dental plaque, that is unhealthy. But the way to clean your mouth to remove maybe unhealthy dental plaque that may be accumulating because of gut dysbiosis, because of maybe bad diet and a variety of other things, you should get involved with basic good oral hygiene. That's what I was going to explain. So normal toothbrushing will not remove healthy dental plaque as long as you brush correctly. So you take a toothbrush that is soft nylon, use it where the uh, cheek and tooth meet or the tongue and tooth meet, angle it at about a 45 degree angle and gently slide or scrub that, that toothbrush bristle into the gum crevice horizontally to remove the soft dental plaque. The harder or more tenacious dental plaque, which is the healthy dental plaque will still remain on the tooth. Even if it was removed, it would regrow within 12, 12 hours. So that's, that's what you would do with a toothbrush. You would use dental floss between the teeth, but only the contacts to remove any fibrous material, like you're eating food that has meat fiber or you know um, uh, a fruit or something that causes a fibrous material to get stuck between the teeth. Dental floss is great for that. But dental floss is not great to floss under the gum because if you try to floss under the gum, most people will literally cut the gum aggressively trying to floss and that's very damaging to the between the teeth those little tp or tape brushes the tape easy picks which are little silicone brushes almost looking like a toothpick are ideal they will not scrub the healthy dental plaque away they'll only remove the unhealthy dental plaque and they will not harm the gum tissue and you just use it back and forth at the tooth gum margin between every tooth. So now you've cleaned the plaque that is unhealthy off the outside and inside of the tooth and between the tooth. The other thing you need to do is to remove excess unhealthy bacteria and food particles that are on the top of your tongue. 80% of mouth odor comes from these bacteria that are causing odors from the food that they're breaking down. So the way you do that is you can use a tongue scraper, but the simplest thing is to take a teaspoon, invert it, put it down, back in your mouth, touch the top of your tongue, and then pull the spoon forward, rubbing it on the tongue. And you'll see in the, in the bowl of the spoon, a little milky fluid that's accumulating. That's the bacteria and decaying food products. If you want to get really gross, you can put that liquid on the top of your hand and let it dry and take a whiff and that's what your bad breath smells like.
that's not what I'm recommended to do. But anyhow, <laughs> this is what this is the way to clean your mouth. You do not need a mouthwash. You do not need anything that's antimicrobial. You don't even need toothpaste if you don't want to. You could just dip the toothbrush in a little bit of salt water. Now, if you want to use a toothpaste, it has to be a gentle toothpaste with no chemicals that are going to damage the gut microbiome. One of the toothpastes that I love um, is called Revitin, R-E-V-I-T-I-N. It's available on Amazon. They have a website, Revitin.com. This has, this has products in the toothpaste that enhance the bacterial garden rather than damage or kill off any bacteria. You do not want to have toothpaste, in my opinion, that has activated charcoal or xylitol or fluoride or any other chemical constituents that will damage the, the normal garden of bacteria. There is no way to kill off only pathogenic bacteria and leave healthy bacteria because it just doesn't exist. And healthy bacteria can become pathogenic if other factors in the, in the, in the uh, bacterial garden are removed. So you don't want to damage this garden. Does makes make sense. sense. Yeah, keep the garden alive. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of protection from dental plaque and you can safely you know, brush off the soft plaque. What do you think about baking soda? Would that be another option for people? Yes. For... Baking soda does a couple things. If you're using a salt water to wet it um, or a toothpaste that you want like Revitin, maybe even dip it in a little baking soda, just a little bit. But baking soda has two benefits, one of which is a, it's a mild abrasive. So when you're brushing gently, like I just explained, it might remove some food um, discoloration on the teeth. It also has the ability to neutralize the acid in your mouth. So if you had a meal or had a drink that is very acidic, it helps to bring it to a state of neutrality rather than maintain an acid level. Great. And I think we'd like to get into your, your story about your own health journey and kind of your diagnosis and like what you've done for your own health, for your immune system. I think we're going to touch on nutrition and lifestyle and a bunch of things. I know this is a topic you blog about a lot. You have an incredible website. But yeah, we'd love to hear about your kind of personal health journey, how you've figured out a way, you know, which is ongoing, it sounds like, to really try to strengthen your immune system. Yeah, so, so the bottom line, no matter who we're talking to, a healthy person, a sick person, a dying person, the immune system is the critical element that your body has to fight the fight it was designed to fight. It not only kills microbes, it also kills cancer cells. But if you do not have a robust immune system at risk for, I am, I'm 75 years old now. So when I was 71 years old, 2018, I was considering myself a um, poster boy for health, a senior poster boy for health. I was eating a paleo diet. I was eating a paleo lifestyle for about six years. I was in great shape, feeling fantastic. I was writing, I was lecturing. And I actually, in April of 2018, I was traveling to Austin to speak at the Paleo FX meeting. And at that moment, when I was traveling, I noticed some soreness in my shoulder when I was carrying my travel bag. And you know, I'm a wuss. I don't like pain, but all of a sudden this pain was there and it, it just 
kept coming and it never went away. And I got back home and the pain went to my back, eventually went to my chest. And from April of 2018 to April, uh, September 2018, this pain was progressively getting more uncomfortable. So I finally went to see my physician. Um, you know, I'm a little pigheaded, I guess. And uh, he's a buddy. I've known him for 35 plus years. And I went to see him and I said, Billy, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I think I pulled a muscle or a ligament or tore a rotator cuff, whatever's going on. So he did some blood work. Everything in the blood work came back normal, but he just did some normal blood work, except one extra test that he did was a CRP, C-reactive protein that generally identifies systemic inflammation. It was indicative of something really going on. So then he said, let's do an MRI and figure out what's going on. And we had an MRI. And then he calls me on the phone. He kids a little bit about things first. He said, did somebody beat you up? Did you fall down some steps? I said, of course not. He said, well, on the MRI, you have a vertebral compression fact fracture. I had several broken ribs that was causing the pain. And I had a hairline fracture in my pelvis. And then he gets very serious and he says that I think you have either leukemia, lymphoma, or multiple myeloma. These are just three cancers. He didn't give me any idea that I had torn rotator cuff. He thinks I have cancer. Now, how can this guy, me, feeling as good as I feel, eating as healthy as I eat, living a healthy lifestyle for at least six years, develop cancer? Obviously, this is devastating to me. He refers me to an oncologist who is now my oncologist, a wonderful guy, but he's conventional. And he does a whole bunch of other tests. And he comes back with a diagnosis of IgA kappa light chain multiple myeloma with severe lytic lesions, meaning I have so many holes in my bone because the disease is eating my bone inside out that I potentially can have fractures easily. In other words, I can twist wrong and break a bone. And that's what happened. At that time, with this first visit to my oncologist after the testing, my wife and two adult children are there. And my oncologist, George, tells me that um, this disease is incurable, number one. And number two, if I do nothing, I have three to six months to live. Now, he immediately wants me to start chemotherapy the next day. So I'm asking him, wait a minute. I'm trying to be logical, but, you know, my world is, crush, cr cr you know, crushing all around me. I'm asking him, why would I do chemotherapy, which is going to destroy my immune system and even worse than this disease has done? And I still have three to six months to live. It's going to destroy my, the quality of my life, too. And he said, well... If you do chemo, you will have, go into remission and you will have more years to live. And I said, well, you said it's incurable. And I, he said, well, yes, it is incurable because the chemo is not going to work very long and the disease is going to come back and we'll need to get another cocktail of chemo again, but it will be more caustic and eventually none of the chemo will work. And I was not a good candidate for stem cell therapy. 
So I'm thinking I'm going to live longer than three to six months, but the quality of my life is going to deteriorate rather rapidly as things break down. And this disease is still going to kill me. So I decided, and my wife, of course, is in agreement, and even George, my oncologist, is in agreement to reject chemotherapy completely. And I start to do a ton of research on what I can do to rebuild my immune system as best as I can to help my body, if it's possible, heal from this serious, deadly multiple myeloma. And that's what I've done. And I did very well. And for a year until August of 2019, I never got, I was never in remission. I never got worse, but I never got better. And everything was, was cool. So in August of 2019, a year later, I'm in my bathroom brushing and flossing my teeth. And I guess I know how to do that, but I need to throw the dental floss away. So just visualize I'm standing with my two feet planted on the floor and I turn 90 degrees to my left. That's where the trash can is. I throw away the dental floss. That's at least that's the attempt I was doing. But as soon as I twist 90 degrees, my right femur snaps in half. I crash to the floor. I break several ribs and my right humerus also snaps in half. So I'm lying on the floor. I know my bones are broken because my foot and my arm are in angles I could never even bend them. I'm actually screaming for my wife who's in the other room. She comes in. Obviously, there's a lot of emotion here. And um, she calls EMS, the emergency ambulance. They take me to the hospital and they want to fix my, my right femur because my femoral artery will artery will bleed out and I'll die. They don't fix my arm. I really am ready to die and I want to die. I know people, patients my age who just fractured their hip and they die months later. I know that the mortality rate is not good. And here I am breaking all these major bones and my disease is severe and I've outlived my prognosis by another six months. So what happens is they put me in hospice to die. And, in, and I'm in hospice at the, after the, they fix my leg. And there is a hurricane coming through Charleston the first week of September of that year. And the hurricane is packing 187 mile an hour winds. It is, is, it is on track to go or hit the hospital itself. And the hospital is ordered to evacuate all patients. They don't know, know what to do with me. My wife is an RN. She gets a hospital bed. They evacuate me to my home. I'm still under hospice. The hurricane comes and goes. And my wife gives me a whole bunch of tough love. And she says, look, you have been doing well until this accident. Let's me get a physical therapist in. Um, and let's get you back on your unconventional cancer protocols and see where we go. Well, actually, things were doing well. My physical therapist got me out of bed. I got this catheter that I had in for 30 days um, out of my body. Uh, and I started to revive and I revoked hospice and went back to my oncologist in October 2019. And he was amazed that I was still alive. 
several things happened along the way. In uh, May of 2020, I had a new PET scan. I had no cancer cells that were active, um, either even though I still was not in remission. PET scans don't show everything. But for the most part, I was doing quite well. Then I got COVID in late 2021, um, destroyed me, weakened my body, and caused the myeloma to reactivate because COVID, of course, activates the immune system. And my disease is a disease of malignant plasma cells, which is the immune system. And it produced so many dysfunctional antibodies, it began to eat into my bones even further. And where I am now is trying to rebuild my immune system because I had another 11 rib fractures after that. So life has been interesting, but I am doing extremely well. And I have helped my body to rebuild its own immune system as best as I can for myself. I am not a example of peak health. Of course not. I have a cancer that's going to kill me. But what I've done is to help my body fight it and maintain the quality of life that I wish to have. Here I am. And that's, that's what the stuff that I recommend to anybody and everybody. That's an amazing journey, Al. Um, I think, you know, we're sitting here in 2022. This is four years after your doctor initially said, I believe, right. that you had three to six months to live. And I'd like to really, for our listeners, too, I mean, this is such a personal story. We really appreciate you sharing this. Um, what are what are the key mindset shifts that people maybe need to have or evolve to have to to fight off something as tough as you know, or to, to you know journey with this kind of uh, kind of disease? I think number one, you need to have a partner who can support you because you're going to have some bouts of depression and you might need a little lifting up, and that's what my wife has been able to do for me. Um, I think that's a critical thing. Another thing is faith in something. I am not a religious person. Absolutely, I would tell you I don't follow any man-made religion, but I am very spiritual. And I do believe in our spirit, and I believe in certain things that might be surprising to many people. But I believe that we are here for a purpose, to learn things. Maybe this is my lesson to, to learn. But when you have a faith in a higher power, I think that that helps you get through some of the rough spots, especially if this is a learning experience and we go on after this mortal life uh, in in a immortal spiritual world um, and then maybe even do it again and again and again. So I do believe in reincarnation, and I guess a few of your listeners may resonate with that. Most of your re- listeners will not, but this is my belief system. So a belief system and someone to support you, especially in very emotionally depressing times, are two critical elements. The other thing, in a more practical sense, is we can do so much to enhance our immune system that is contrary to the guy in the white coat telling you you're going to die. Attitude is everything. And you don't have to have 
you don't have to be in denial, but you can certainly be in a state where you can do things that are practical to improve your immune system. And I'm not talking about crazy anecdotal stories, um, sticking things up your butt and all kinds of crazy things that are not natural. I am talking about the natural, healthy, normal pathways of your body to enhance them to get better. Let's delve into that a bit. What are the key lifestyle or nutrition changes that you've found to be helpful that, like you said, are very practical, practical and accessible to, to folks listening out there? Sure. First of all, you need to do a little, a person needs to do some research. So I did quite an uh, amount of research and I made a lot of mistakes and a lot of things that I started doing way back in 2018, I've tweaked out of my protocols um, as things became more obvious to me that they were not functional. But there is a clinic in Budapest, Hungary called the Paleo Medicina Clinic. It's been around for now, I guess, 11 plus years. The doctors there treat only severe chronic disease and cancers, and they treat their patients with a strict diet, an animal-based diet. They call it a paleolithic ketogenic diet where the patients do not take any um, prescription medications. They do not take any synthetic supplements. They only eat an animal-based diet, nose to tail, meaning they're eating healthy meat with organs and animal fat and bone marrow and cartilage. And they are getting unbelievable results of curing chronic disease and cancers. Now, obviously they don't cure all their patients. Some patients do go in remission, yet they still have the disease. And some patients don't uh, succeed and they die, of course. But they have a number of patients that are cured or going into remission that they report in various journals translated into English, which you can actually do some research about. And you can find this type of way of eating and the elements, how it supports the immune system, as well as gut health, repairing epithelial barrier breakdown, in other words, eliminating um, a leaky gut, which is critical. So when you have this diet lifestyle, diet way of eating, and you have a healthy gut and a healthy membrane, you're not pouring into your system unhealthy toxic lipopolysaccharides you're preventing causes of cancer and then your body's immune system can start or or at least enhance its ability to fight this cancer and other issues that may be related to cancer so that's that's the emphasis of my protocols a healthy diet meaning an animal-based diet we can go into that and we are also a means to repopulate and enhance the gut microbiome. And then many other things, including good sleep patterns, exercise patterns, reducing emotional stress, so on and so forth. I read that you're having the uh, 90, uh, or rather a 70% animal-based nose to tail, and then 30% low oxalate, low lectin plants. Is that still kind of what you're doing? That I recommend down? that for the average person. As a matter of fact, Paleo Medicina Clinic does does recommend a 70%, 30% ratio for those patients that are 
um, in remission or um, in the state of cure rather than early stages of treatment. Personally, I was 100% animal-based, 0% plants for about a year, starting the 1st of 2020 to the end of 2020. Then I started to incorporate um, raw honey as well as some fruits, practically no vegetables, no nuts, no seeds, um, nothing that had or any uh, level of phytates, oxalates, and lectins, which are major anti-nutrients. That would be outside or not part of my diet. But my, right now, I'm eating about 90% or so animal-based and 10% maybe some fruit and raw honey. Got it. Okay. Okay. What would you say in terms of the conventional wisdom of, you know, some would say someone with breast cancer, prostate cancer, I believe the conventional wisdom is to go low on the saturated fat. Um, I, I know, you know, even, well, even I think some integrative um, advice sometimes. Yeah, I know. And there are some very brilliant people recommending a, a total plant-based diet. Um, hopefully, I have, hopefully we're not getting into that. We're not trying to get in the diet words here, but no, uh, no, I just okay, want to hear plant, your opinion. That's all. Yeah. So my opinion is based on, on uh, medical research that I have read from peer reviewed journals and saturated fat from animals that are raised in a humane way and are not fed grain and not um, given injections of antibiotics and hormones, which conventional animal husbandry will do. Um, if those things are eliminated, the meat and the fat is extremely healthy. Saturated fat is part of our means to produce hormones in our body. Um, saturated fat is a means to produce healthy cell membranes um, and brain tissue. And I mean, it's so many benefits. So saturated fat has been shown to actually enhance the body's ability and prevent chronic disease. But saturated fat from unhealthy animals is not. And also saturated fat from animals that have been eating a number of plants that are high in linoleic acid like corn and soy will actually be concentrated in their meat and skin and fat. And when we eat them, this linoleic acid is very damaging to our micro mitochondria and fat cells. And as a matter of fact, cancer is a disease of not just metabolic dysfunction, but also mitochondrial dysfunction. So if we're damaging the mitochondria from the food we're eating, like saturated fat from pork and chicken, that would be unhealthy. Of course, linoleic acid is not saturated fat, but there are fats, including linoleic acid, could be very damaging to our body. I mean, this goes back to what we've talked about in the last couple of podcasts, which is really transforming the food system, right? Because I mean, yes. it's really hard to actually eat that way, a low, low linoleic acid, diet, you know, truly pasture-raised, truly 100% grass-fed, you almost have to get a subscription from, I don't know, some of these, you know, like Butcher Box or Wild Harvest or different No, things. I don't think so. I can go to my local Harris Teeter, okay. which is a big grocery store, and they have ground beef and ground lamb that is grass-fed, grass-finished from a, very, a variety of farms, not only in the United States, but New Zealand, it's there in packages. There you go. So, so it's, it's more not, accessible than it, it was before. Yeah. Yes, I think it's very accessible. And if you avoid the foods that have linoleic acid, in other words, don't eat chicken, don't eat pork, don't eat the plants that have um, 
from or 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 the uh, seeds, uh, vegetable and seed oils that have high linoleic acid. If you're avoiding them completely, you're not getting them in your system. Of course, that those are in highly processed foods. So you have to look at the labels or just not eat highly processed foods. You can make all your food easily. And there are places that you can actually go out and eat a burger that is made from grass-fed, grass-finished beef. Yeah, yeah. What would you say for the the whole low lectin, low oxalate kind of plant uh, idea? In other words, I, I know you said you don't eat that much yourself, but for someone out there that's trying to eat say a, a, a lower uh, lectin diet or something, what, what, what kind of plants would you recommend there for them? So let's, let's talk about why are, are you eating the plants to start with? You're eating the plants because you think you need the fiber. You're eating the plants because you think they ne- you need the nutrients. And everyone has told you, you need a rainbow of colors. So you're going to eat all these vegetables and, and things that are high in fiber and high in nutrients. The problem is the fiber isn't a critical element. That's another uh, uh, statement that will get a lot of controversy, although it's true. Our bodies do not need the fiber. I'll tell you why in a moment. And the other thing is that most of the nutrients in plants that have themselves high oxalates and lectins, these will bind to the minerals and other nutrients and not allow them to be bioavailable so the body doesn't absorb them. They may be in the food, but they get pooped out right away because you can't absorb them. Every nutrient, or I would say almost every nutrient your body needs would be in animal-based foods if you eat them nose to tail, meaning all the organs and the saturated fat and so on and so forth. These animals that are ruminants that have four stomachs, like sheep and cattle, for example, these these ruminant animals eating grasses and whatever on, on the field, pastured without chemicals on the grasses, they have the ability to digest even the nanti-nutrients, removing them, converting them to healthy nutrients into their their, their blood and, and bone and marrow and, and meat. And when you eat them, the zinc and the other nutrients and um, the amino acids are pure and they get absorbed immediately without any hindrance from anti-nutrients to bind to them. So you can get all the nutrients. The other thing about fiber is very interesting. First of all, you can do some research and you will see especially a paper that was published in early 2021 from a couple or three um, archeologists and um, uh, uh, other uh, degrees. I can't remember the three guys and their degrees, but they did quite a bit of research and showed that the human species evolving over two and a half million years basically are omnivores, meaning they eat all kinds of animals and plants they are predominantly carnivores. They need and do eat animal protein and all the other elements. And there are many ways that has been proven to do that. And these nutrients get absorbed in their body and created their, their, the, the, the species that we are today. So our bodies know how to use these nutrients. In addition, our microbiome, if it is eating a plant-based diet, will take the fiber and metabolize the fiber into short chain fatty acids, which is critical for many, many functions in our body. 
But in an animal-based diet, the microbiome actually is slightly different in the gut. And the microbiome in the gut will then use amino acids to ferment into the short-chain fatty acids that are required. So at, at humans, um, like some of the primal uh, um, societies like the Hadza, who eat primarily an animal-based diet, but they are omnivores, um, do not eat much fiber, yet they are extremely healthy people. And other societies that maintain their, their um, primal eating lifestyles, maybe some of the ones like the Inuits, although they're not as primal as they used to be, but the primal Inu Inuits, which were eating 90, 95% animal base, did not have fiber in their diet, but basically were healthy people. Today, Inuits have gotten westernized and they have many, many chronic diseases, but the primal Inuits were doing quite well. So the fiber is not the critical element as long as the microbiome in the gut is um, of, the, of the constituency to break down the amino acids into the short chain fatty acids that are required. So to answer your question, in my opinion, avoid those plants that have phytates, oxalates, and lectins, at least any degree that may be accumulating in your body. Now, there are many organizations that can identify how many milligrams or whatever the measuring is for the oxalates and lectins in the food you eat. You can choose the ones that are lowest if you want to eat just a low phytate, oxalate, lectin, um, uh, uh, plant or avoid them completely. Most fruits do not have these problems. So you could eat the animal-based, you could eat the fruits. Honey is amazingly healthy as long as raw honey. We can talk about that, but it has many, many medicinal benefits. And you can survive not only um, well, but you will thrive well on a diet of those foods and get the nutrients your body needs. Well, Dr. Al, your wealth of knowledge, and uh, we just wish to thank you for coming on today. And really, we covered a wide range of topics today, but you know, gut health, oral health, microbiome, how everything's linked, and then kind of went into your personal story. So thank you so much for, for sharing that, and certainly wish you good luck on your health journey moving forward as well. How can listeners learn more about you and work with you? Uh, I think you're also a nutritional coach, correct? Yeah, so I um, my website is Dr dannenberg.com, D-R-D-A-N-E-N-B-E-R-G.com. I sell nothing on my website. I don't recommend products that I, I, I mean, I don't have a store on my website that I sell products from. I do recommend products, but I don't sell products. I do offer coaching, especially a 12-week metabolic coaching program where I look at your overall medical dental history. I look at your dental x-rays to see if there are individual areas of your body that you're not aware of in your mouth that could be causing other areas of infection. I look at a three-day food journal that you send me and then certainly create a program that works for you. And we follow that up over a period of 12 weeks. That's so great. Um, and then one, one last kind of fun question. If you were traveling to a desert island and this question was originally a supplement question, but given what you said about supplements, what three <laughs> foods would you bring with you on that desert island, assuming there were no you know, animals there? Or maybe- Three what, what, foods that I would be, okay. So I would 
I would take desiccated organs, desiccated organs, so those are in powder form because all these nutrients are alive and well without the water. Um, and I would probably in some fashion get or make some beef jerky or lamb jerky that I could take and nibble on. And those would suffice as long as I had good spring water that had trace minerals in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's on the Island. So, uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Al, for being on today. It's been a pleasure and, um, good luck with you on your journey. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity again. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.